Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. I am here with Ade Adeyokunu. Ade is actually one of our other guest, Bookie's brother, and he is the founder of an organization called Sick Cell, which is raising awareness about the condition. He lives with sickle cell himself. So this is brother and sister who live with sickle cell, um, and Ade is going to tell us about his experience, and thank you so much for being on the show today, Ade. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Pleasure yeah. to be here. Absolutely. What, what a joy for us to connect. So let's start at the very top of the story. When and how were you first diagnosed? Was it when you were born? And, and what steps have you taken to control your health since then? Yeah, so I don't remember the exact uh, age that I was diagnosed, but I want to say it was around like two or three because it was relatively earlier on. Uh, I just remember being sick a lot as a kid um, growing up in Nigeria um, initially before I moved to the States and frequently being in the hospital. Um, and then growing up learning what sickle cell was and how it affected my body. Um, at that young age, I didn't really quite understand uh, what was happening, but I definitely knew that I wasn't like, you know, quote unquote normal. <laughs> um, but I didn't, I didn't start to like take steps to take control of my health until like maybe way later on, um, later teenage years probably. Wow. And I, if I remember correctly, also, Bookie mentioned that it seems like your parents didn't know that they were both carriers of sickle cell trait. So they didn't Correct. know to even look for that when you guys Correct. were first born. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. So that's got to be a huge realization, not only for them, but also for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. I think back then, a lot of people, um, especially back in Nigeria, um, even till now, there isn't a lot of um, prevalent testing for people that have the trait. Um, and even in the States, it wasn't till recently, I think, uh, maybe late 90s in, in most states that require um, testing for sickle cell. 
uh, for newborns. Wow. Yeah. So what have you done to be able to take control of your health since you got the diagnosis? Obviously, when you were really little, um, that was probably something that was managed by your parents. But how has that evolved for you? And are you able to keep crises at bay? Yeah, it's been quite the journey for me because like growing up from, I think, middle school, high school up until college, I actually didn't even have a hematologist. I was just mostly seeing a primary care physician and my GP, um, which he was he was OK, but it, it, it didn't fill the needs that I needed, um, you know, as, as, as someone living with sickle cell. So after after graduating from college was when I really started to um, take control of my health and being like active about it. Um, so I, you know, found a hematologist that was helping me out with my health and then just educating myself and learning, um, you know, every day, like, hey, what is this? What is causing this? What is the, you know, mechanism behind this drug and how does it work? Um, I always make the jokes that, you know, folks living with chronic illnesses should get like an honorary MD degree sometimes yes. because we have to know so much. <laughs> yeah. But going into that rabbit hole and just like educating myself has been like one of the key aspects of taking control of my health. Mm, absolutely. So what about this transition from pediatric care to adult care? You know, did your parents have to step up and become advocates for you when you were little? And when were you able to step up and start becoming your own advocate? What has that journey looked like and how has it impacted your relationship? Yeah, you mentioned my sister earlier. So I think she had more of like the traditional transition from like pediatrics to adult more than I did just because like, as I mentioned earlier, I didn't really have like that um, hospital system of like uh, children's national or something um, where where I had all of my doctors in one place. I just kind of had like my main uh, primary care doctor. Well, she's then, only just gotten that herself at Johns Hopkins. Exactly. Exactly. And like, this is in adulthood. Yeah, exactly. And then having, I think to some degree, having immigrant parents also played a big part in that because they aren't as active with your um, healthcare per se um, and, and being like super advocates for you. And I think another layer to that for my parents specifically is because they're quite religious <laughs> and, and having religious parents, um, they, they mean the best for you, but they don't always go about it the best way uh, because a lot of things uh, fall back to like, oh yeah, God will do this or God will do that. So some things might mm. fall by the wayside instead of being like quite active about taking care of it. So it wasn't until I was able to do so myself and kind of put things in my own hands that I was able to take better control of my health pretty much and reduce the amount of crisis that I have every year. Yeah. So it's, that's that eternal push-pull between faith and science, which yeah. we're here to say <laughs> they can coexist peacefully. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, you mentioned also before we started the interview, and this might be a good time to talk about it, culturally speaking as well, there's a lot of stigma attached to sickle cell in your home country of Nigeria. And that probably had an influence on your parents' perception of what was going on too, right? Yeah, absolutely. So sickle cell and most illnesses, but I want to say specifically sickle cell, um, is, is one of those that's very misunderstood and often stigmatized. Um, misunderstood in the sense that back back then in Nigeria, they didn't really know exactly what was happening, right? So there was a lot of uh, superstition and like mythology around what was happening. 
uh, you know, like some people back then was like, oh, this is based on witchcraft. And even to this day, some African nations, I know in Cameroon, it was just a few years ago, maybe two or three years ago, I was reading an article that this is still happening, right? So there's still a lot of like unfortunate ignorance is still happening that's perpetuating um, a lot of these stigmas. And it's become like a taboo thing that people don't speak about. But in the last couple of years, at least in Nigeria, uh, with some of the organizations I've been involved with, there's been a big push for awareness and education and people are you know, speaking up more about this to, to kind of um, teach other people what's going on and ways to actually prevent this and take care of their health. That's very exciting. That's great news. And I know that Sixcel is among those organizations that are partnering with international organizations, which we will get to. But I would love you to also talk to us about what a typical day is like for you. I know I asked this question and there's no such thing as a typical day for most of us, but how are you finding a balance between this very American, you know, work, work, work and your life and being able to manage potential crises and being able to be mindful enough to prevent them from happening? How does that work out for you? Yeah, um, it's definitely a challenge at times. Uh, I think it's been a, a adjustment period for me most recently because I uh, went back to school two years ago for my MBA uh, full time. Uh, So I actually just finished that last year. So I started. Oh, congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So I just started working again last year. So it was kind of uh, an adjustment making the shift from being like a full time student again to like now working again. Um, I I feel like I had a lot more leeway definitely when I was a student. Um, I've been a student three times now, and I feel like each time it's gotten maybe a little bit easier. Um, kind of goes back to your question from earlier, a little bit of when I actually um, started to uh, advocate for myself personally was when I was in grad school in Michigan in 2009, which is when I created that um, community six cell uh, for people living with sickle cell. Um, but day to day right now, it depends. Uh, I work in marketing, which is a desk job, which is good and bad <laughs> uh, because you're sitting down all day. So I try to be active with like getting up every hour, uh, making sure I hydrate. Um, some days are longer than others. Um, kind of touched on this earlier too when we're having a conversation about trying to get enough sleep because we're always like tired and groggy in the morning. Sometimes we have those eight o'clock meetings. And yeah, Ade is not a morning person. That. He's just yeah. like me. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not yeah. at all. Um, so it really just depends. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because it's like this nine to five expectation, even though that's when the American workday functions. A lot of us don't function at nine. Yeah, I definitely don't function quite well at nine. So it takes me a while. My my peak hours are probably like afternoon. Mm. Oh, so I've got you in sort of peak hours right now. This is good. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Fantastic. So um, what is it like in terms of actually preventing crises from, from happening? What does that look like for you? It looks like sleep. But is it also like exercise, diet, like socializing? Like, how are you making that all work? Yeah, all of those things are very crucial aspects of it. Um, sleep, definitely. Um, for me, making sure I'm hydrated. So I'm overly hydrated. Always have some water uh, or something with me. Um, I think that's probably one of the, the big triggers for me. Um, on average, I still have about like two to three episodes a year where I, where I do have to be hospitalized. So I've, I've had that's two this year. That's a lot. Yeah. You've had two already, uh, yeah. That's a lot. So I'm hoping I'm done for the year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it definitely can be a lot. And keeping your stress levels down, which always can be, you know, hard to do too, because it's like, you know, just life in general, it can be stressful in different 
push and pulls and the environment of what's been happening in the last few months with the pandemic and uh, just everything else. Um, so making sure that you try to stay level-headed through, through it all um, can be challenging. Absolutely. Well, and I'm wondering if you've been in situations, because this is a very invisible illness, right? Have you been in situations, be they medical or social or otherwise, where you've been forced to validate the existence of your diagnosis to people who just didn't understand it because they couldn't see it because there was no visual signifier? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of times in the work workplace, especially, um, it's it, it can be a little bit hard to um, get the point across to people, right? Because they don't see it until um, I think one day in my previous jobs, I actually ended up having a crisis at work and had to go into the hospital. So sometimes when they like see that happening, um, it, it kind of helps to ground them a little bit more. Uh, it sucks because yeah, you have to go through the crisis. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. But yeah, I've, I've definitely been in, in those situations a few times where um, you have to kind of like vouch for yourself and, and justify that you're, you're in pain. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm wondering, especially what that's like. I mean, we've been talking a lot on the show. The timeliness of these episodes is kind of interesting, right? Because we're in the midst of uh, another upheaval regarding race relations in the U.S., very much needed. And, you know, being a Black man in the middle of all of this, right, being someone who has a compromised immune system, (laughs) And, um, you know, needing people to believe you, which is exactly what so much of the discussions we're having about race are about, let alone about medicine. What have your experiences been like in the healthcare system, you know, because of the way you present, because you're a black man going into the doctor's office. Have you experienced prejudice um, and or privilege um, in the system because of that? And can you see your circumstances maybe being different if you were a white guy walking into the office? Yeah, I mean that that's like a loaded question. It's tough to say like know. you know, this this would be the way it is if, if I wasn't um if this wasn't my skin color. But I can speak to my personal experiences that I have had. Um for most doctors' offices, at least for like my hematologist and like my other personal care team that I have, um, they've been pretty good with, you know, treating me as just who I am. Um Because they're familiar with sickle cell, they know what they're dealing with. Exactly, exactly. But um, I think the worst part of it is when I do have a crisis and I have an episode and I have to go into the hospital or um, go into the ER that I've never been to before. Um, There's no track record or anything like that. I think those are the times where I um, often face those prejudices. Um, You can, you know, one, be in the ER waiting room for hours on end in pain, right? And you're like already in excruciating pain. And then when you do get triaged, you're still waiting to, to, to see someone. And then when someone does see you, they don't give you the right dose of medicine that you need, or they give you something else instead of what you actually need um, that you know actually, you know, relieves your pain, which all of this just exacerbates the pain and, you know, causes further complications, which is really unfortunate. But, well, and the more pain you're in, the more stress you're experiencing, which is then causing more pain. So it's like a vicious yeah. continual and continuing yeah. cycle. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think in general, just, uh, black people have been known, I think, I can't remember the stats, like 22% or so. Um, there was a study, even at the infant level, which kind of blew my mind, are less likely to receive the necessary payments that they need. Um, wow. so it's, it, like the, the, like you mentioned, the um, what's happening right now with the Black Lives Movement, I think goes way further than just, you know, what we see 
right? And it touches on these invisible conditions within the healthcare system as well. Absolutely. Well, and it's interesting because your experience of prejudice in the system is the same as your sister's, that like you guys are both talking about the emergency situation and even going to, I know Bookie mentioned, you know, knowing which hospitals you can go to and which you can't because the doctors or nurses might not know about sickle cell when you come in with a crisis in emergency, some aren't educated. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, most of these doctors, they probably spent half a day learning about this in med school, right? So they're not very familiar with it to the extent of uh, the pain that it causes and the other complications that come with it. So a lot of times you're educating these doctors, right? I've been in the ER before where a doctor or nurse would ask, oh, so how long have you had sickle cell? And you're just like, oh, really? I was like, born with I this? I was born with it, yeah. <laughs> like, Since I was born, thank you. It's <laughs> like a really terrible way to start things off when you're in yeah. the ER in pain and you're just like, oh, wow, this is not good. Yeah, there's an ignorance there for sure. Is sickle cell still considered a rare disease as well? Because like, you know, I wonder about how much time is spent in medical school with people learning about different diagnoses. Like, is there less time spent on sickle cell because it's considered rare? Um, that could be potentially one of the reasons. I mean, who knows? But it I is, mean, people it are also concerned. prejudiced. This is not to undercut the fact that people <laughs> are literally <Yeah>. racist. <laughs> yeah, uh, but... But it, it is considered a rare disease in, in the United States because it's said um, to affect less than 200,000 people. Um, so I, I do work with some of the rare advocacy groups as well. But it's interesting, too, because it's considered rare, but there could be, I mean, you're talking about you didn't find out until you were a couple of years old. There could be people who have it who don't know and are experiencing chronic pain and don't necessarily understand why. Um but could be undiagnosed. So there could be more people than we think. Exactly. Especially given the fact that there are so many different types of sickle cell disease. Um, You know, there are less severe versions and people who, you know, don't often have a crisis. I know people with uh, sickle cell SC, for example, that didn't have their first crisis until they were like in their mid twenties and thirties. So there there could be a big population of people who, who just don't know. And there's all that stigma attached to it too. So who knows who's reporting what and not. What kind of sickle cell do you have specifically? I have sickle cell SS. Uh, SS. So it's, usually, it's usually based on your hemoglobin. So um, the, the genetic mutation, the, the common popular ones are SS, SC, and thalassemia. And there are various types of thalassemia as well. So just swinging back to what we were talking about a minute ago, would you say that these inequities in the healthcare system, um, racial, gender even, um, would you say that they are a public health crisis? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's there's a lot more attention being paid to, to that aspect of it now. Mm. Um, and uh, a couple of different groups, the minority health group is currently working on some initiatives to actually look at data um, within the sickle cell space and how it affects um, people of, of uh, how the socioeconomic status depend, mm. you know, affects their health rather. So I think looking at social determinants of health right now is like a big push in that, in that space. Well, that's good to hear. So yeah. talk to us about your advocacy work. Can you tell us about why you started Sick Cell, mm. how it functions as a support for you, um, and what work that you guys have been doing as you've been growing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I touched on it a bit earlier. I started it back in 2009, um, and it's six cell spelled S-I-K-C-E-L-L. Um, and we'll link to it on the website, by the way. Yeah, because there's another six cell, and we often get confused. Uh, hers has a, a C in it, and they're doing amazing work over there as well. Yeah. Um, 
So I started it back in 2009 when I was just looking for other people to connect with, kind of going through what I was going through. Um, I guess I was a little bit blessed in a way in the fact that my sister had it. So growing up and being at home, we were always close in that regard. So I kind of knew someone else going through what I was going through. We kind of bonded on that. But then when I left, it's kind of school, amazing. Like it sucks, yeah. but it's also kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of like a blessing in disguise. So I didn't, mm. I didn't feel as lonely, uh, but I, I felt it when I left and went to school. Cause I was just like, I'm on my own here. No one really understands what's happening. Um, so I started searching online just for communities. This was before the advent of all like the Facebook groups and all of that was, was popular. Uh, so there was kind of nothing out there. So I decided to just create this. Um, and then through that, it just kind of took on a life of its own. I got to meet people like all across the globe um, living with sickle cell and a lot of people saying that they've never met anyone else with sickle cell. And this is like their first time meeting people. Um, and then through that, being able to work with different organizations like the Sickle Cell Consortium, the Sickle Cell um, Association of America, um, We Go Health, like we talked about earlier. Mm. Um, so it's, it, it kind of just took on a life of its own and, it's been it's been way more impactful than um, I ever anticipated it to be, and I'm just very grateful for being able to do that. Yeah, it seems like it was a very natural transition for you to start advocating for yourself and then start being an advocate for others and being able to create this safe space. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Yeah, and I think it's important for us to note here. I mean, we've talked about this, and we've had other sickle cell um, advocates on the show before. But sickle cell, while it largely affects people from like an Afro Caribbean background, it's not just Black people who have sickle Correct. cell. Yeah. Yes, there are a lot of people on uh, on my site that I've met that aren't Black that have sickle cell. Mm-hmm. Um, I've met people in France and people in a bunch of different other countries. And when I go to some of the conventions in person as well, uh, I get to meet a lot of diverse people that um, aren't just black people. Mm. So let's talk about our healthcare system again. (laughs) I know that we've, we've touched on ways in which it's not serving patients. Mm -hmm. Are there ways in which it is working at all that you think have sort of helped you through your own health experiences? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's, it's one of those things. It's like, um, What's the saying? One man's trash is another one's or pain or whatever, however it goes. One man's um, so, trash is another man's treasure. Exactly, exactly. So like for me personally, I think I've been fortunately enough to um, always had some form of insurance, uh, whether it was through my parents when I was younger or through my uh, employer. Uh, so I think I've been, I've been blessed in, in that regard of always being covered um, when it comes to my, my healthcare expenses, because I couldn't imagine otherwise, um, because the, what I pay out of pocket now is still very, very high on a yearly basis. Um, but what I would be paying out of pocket without that insurance coverage uh, would be like, you know, five times as much, right? Um, I recently had surgery this year, actually, in February for AVN of the hip. So I had a cord compression done I'm still kind of recovering from that, mm-hmm. but like, that's a really high expense, but, yeah. you know, fortunately having uh, the insurance through my employer was able to cover most of it. So there's some aspects of the healthcare system that I think is doing well. And it also depends on where you are um, being in Pennsylvania. Now I'm, I'm with the, the Penn healthcare system, I think, which is one of the best ones in the East coast, at least. Um, and I've had a really, really good experience with them. Um, my hematologist that I have, I can call them ahead of time if I'm in a crisis before I go into the hospital so I don't have to wait as long um, so they can prep them. So like a lot of those little things, I think it really depends on 
who who your provider is and where you're based, kind of like what we touched on earlier about you being in L.A. and having ac- access to like, you know, more of like the holistic system, too. Mm. Absolutely. Well, and I suppose it also depends internationally as well. Things would change because you're talking to people all over the world. So I'm sure you're getting a sense of what they're going through in their various systems as well. Yeah, absolutely. I recently had a WhatsApp chat session with an organization in Nigeria um, and talking about how expensive the healthcare system is there to them. And then when I shared some of the out-of-pocket prices of some of what I had to pay here, they were mind-blown. Like, oh, wow, that's really, really expensive, like way more than you know, they're used to see it. So it's all relative. Absolutely. So I would love for you to be able to give some tips. I mean, you're an expert in living successfully with sickle cell. Can you give your top three tips for someone who maybe they suspect they've got something a little off with their health? Maybe they're living with sickle cell. Um, But what would you recommend to someone who's living with an invisible chronic illness like this? Your top three best pieces of advice or something you would have told yourself when you were younger, maybe? Yeah, I would say the first one is don't doubt yourself as far as like if you think something is off, like you're your own best advocate and you know your body the most. So, you know, be proactive in seeking that care. Um, If if you have to get a second or third opinion, go ahead and do that. Don't always just rely on whatever the first person say. Um, Secondly, I would say find a community of like-minded people um, because that goes a really long way. Um, Feeling like you're on an island can be very isolated. Uh, but when you have people that can relate and to, to what you're going through and they get it, um, that, that, that helps. And they can actually point you to other resources that you might not be aware of that can be helpful to you as well. And then lastly, I would say just continue to educate yourself. Um, kind of like I said earlier, I'm always learning something new, right? Like within the 15 years that I would say I've been act- actively advocating for sickle cell, there's still always something new to learn like every day. Um, so never stop like just educating yourself. On the, on the topic. I think that's really well said. What about one more top three list? And this one's my favorite, um, but top three things that you turn to for joy. So things that give you unbridled joy. And we know you've had to like be mindful of a lot of your lifestyle choices in order to avoid crises. So this can be something that like, you're going to do it anyway, like a guilty yeah. pleasure or a secret indulgence or even a comfort activity. Like if you're in the ER and you need to be comforted, like what are three things you turn to for joy and grounding? I'm definitely one of those people that's like, I'm going to do it anyway. Like YOLO, live your life kind of thing, which can be good and bad. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The the one thing I do love doing is traveling. I absolutely love traveling. Um, I fortunately got a chance to to study abroad for my semester um, during my MBA last year. And I got um, I studied abroad in Hong Kong. And while I was there, I got a chance to travel to um, nine Asian countries, which is just amazing. Um, So getting a chance to like experience different cultures, different foods, um, something out of your, you know, normal purview um, is something that I love to do. And I said, I said for better or worse earlier, because a lot of times, a lot of people are actually afraid to travel because of sickle cell, uh, because of, you know, the long flight time and the oxygenation, Uh, low oxygenation could be a problem and trigger crisis. But for me, I just always take all the necessary precautions needed. Um, so I always yeah. say, like, you shouldn't live in fear of, unless, you know, fear of a crisis holds you back from living your best life. But much. what if you're also going to a country where, like, sickle cell isn't really as much of a, a dis- yeah. you know, sort of disease that's discussed? Like, that's got to yeah. be a concern, too, if you've got to go to the hospital. Yeah, absolutely. It was a concern for me. Um, so I think taking the precautions. So, like, for me, I was going with a good friend of mine who knew 
um, about my sickle cell. And I did end up getting sick twice and being in the hospital in the span wow. of the three months that I was there. But to me, that was just a blimp and like the whole experience that I got to have. And if I got a chance to do it all over again, I would. Um, so I, I've, I've traveled a couple of times before internationally where I ended up being sick in that country. And um, it, it definitely can be scary for sure. Um, but I always tell people, if this is something that you really want to do, don't let your illness you know, prevent you from doing it. And that goes to anything, yeah. not just traveling, like achieving your dreams and goals in general. Yeah. And maybe buy the trip health insurance. <laughs> oh, yes, sick. absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> the trip health insurance. Which is cheap. Life. You can get it super cheap. Yes. Yes. Like it literally saved my life. It was amazing. Um, and the one I had was even better because I can just text them through the app on the wow. phone and get someone on the phone to, to translate for me when it comes oh, to like wow. language barriers and everything like that. So, Well, if only we had that in our healthcare system here to begin with. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Wow. Okay. Um, so travel is your first one. What about two more? Travel is one. Uh, the second one is another one of those things that's not good for you per se, but <laughs> I do love every, every once in a while is just a nice cocktail. My goal yes. is an old It's Friday. Fashion. I'm having one um, soon. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm a sucker for like some good bourbon. Um, I, mm. I lived in Kentucky for like three months, so I really oh got gosh. into bourbon while I was out there. Yeah. Um, so that is, is always like a joyful moment to just have a good old-fashioned once in a while. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah. And then lastly, I would just say like, like media, I guess, is, is the umbrella I would put it under. Uh, so that goes with like music and, and shows and, and movies in general. So just like watching a really good movie or a really good show or just hearing like a really good song that just makes you want to dance. <laughs> Absolutely. That's I love that. So what would you ask listeners who are tuning in today? What can they do to support you and the sickle cell community and sick cell in the continuing work that you're doing? Yeah, I'll tell you the first thing is you can follow us on Twitter. Um, we're on Twitter at sick cell. And you can check out the community um, online at sickcell.com and register to be a member, uh, be active on there. And then for the sickle cell community at large, um, the one thing I always tell everyone is please give blood uh, if you can. Uh, that's like so crucial for people living with sickle cell because most, a lot of times we need uh, blood transfusions. And um, especially with African-American listeners, um, we are the group that gives blood the least and oftentimes we need it the most. Um, so, and if you also can, this goes a step further than giving blood, but register on bethematch.com to give bone marrow. Um, it's a big ask, but um, that's the only viable cure right now for sickle cell is if you have a bone marrow transplant match. Wow, amazing. So what is next in your advocacy journey and in your wellness journey? Yeah, I feel like there's so many exciting things on the horizon uh, for me right now. I am currently on the um, community input panel for the Cure Sickle Initiative. Wow. Uh, which is being spearheaded by uh, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Uh, so that's really awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes of that. And it's pretty much just like a research effort um, that was designated to help accelerate um, promising genetic therapies to, to cure sickle cell. So it's really cool, cutting edge, uh, cutting edge stuff. And I'm also currently working with a couple of other warriors um, that do advocacy work. One of them is a photographer. She has a project called Unbreakable Warrior Project. Um, and Amazing. she plans to 
um, do like a black and white series of showing our invisible scars. Um, a lot of us with sickle cell have had multiple surgeries because I mentioned I had one earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also had like a gallbladder surgery. So like making the um, invisible more visible is kind of like the thing. That's what we're at. all about. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. yes. And then lastly, I've been saying it for the last couple of years. I think I'm finally going to get to it now is revamping the sick cell site. Um, okay. And make it more interactive. I love that. Ade, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks again for having me. I I really love and appreciate what you're doing with your podcast and giving people uh, a voice and and just raising awareness, and it's awesome. You're so kind, and I'm so glad that you were able to share your story with us today, and thank you for being so open. Um, And I know especially the Black community is doing a lot of extra heavy lifting right now, so thank you especially for taking the time at this moment in time um, to share everything with us. I'm so appreciative and so honored to have shared this time with you. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.